So in the pews, there are some Bibles. Feel free to grab one. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which is kind of, well, it's 90% of the way through on page 1150, um, if you'd like to follow it there and and just check that um, what I'm saying makes sense from the Bible. So, click it got too many things. So, um, by way of overview, I think we need to just look at where we've come from in 1 Corinthians before we get into the meat of this particular chapter. So, the themes that have come up so far, and I do apologise for the small typeface for the boxes, um, are wisdom and knowledge in chapters 1, 2, and 8. That one is... Sorry, they are very, very small. I'll bring them all up. Okay, clearer this way, fantastic. Eventually I get there. <laughs> Thank you. So wisdom and knowledge occurs in chapters 1, 2, and 8. Um, sex, chapters 5, 6, 7, and 10. Food, chapter 6 and 10. Temptation, chapter 10. Idol religion, chapters 8 and 10. Love, Unity and Division, chapters 1, 3, 5 and 8. Maturity and Worldliness, chapters 2 and 4. And the right to do anything, which is one of the things that the Corinthians had said they thought they might have. And Paul is addressing in this book, in both in chapters 9 and 10. So you can see that throughout the whole book, you get these themes just popping up. That, you, know, you might get a whole chapter on wisdom in chapter 2. Um, and then, then it disappears again, and then it pops up again later. And there's this kind of, it's a bit like a kind of woven garment. You get uh, all of the threads coming up at different points. So that actually makes giving a talk on it quite difficult, because you've got quite a lot of complex interwoven themes. And every five minutes, Paul kind of remembers what he was talking about earlier and says, oh yeah, don't forget about wisdom, or don't forget about love, or don't forget about this. Uh, and so it, it's, a, it's a very beautifully woven book. It, it's one of the largest epistles in, in the uh, New Testament. Um, it's uh, about 8,000 words in English, which is a very long letter. Um, it's up, it could be the same length as Romans, depending on whether you look at, at, at the English or the Greek. But they're both about 8,000 words, which is long. So... Went back by mistake. So this particular um, passage in 1 Corinthians 10 deals very much with temptation. Um, And one of the places that temptation comes up first as the word temptation is in the Judean wilderness where Jesus was led out in in Mark chapter, uh, at the beginning of, of, of all the Gospels. And I don't know uh, whether anyone could hazard a guess as to how many times the word temptation comes up in the Bible. Anyone got any clues? <laughs> how many would you say? There are 800,000 words in an English Bible. How many times do you think we get temptation? 50. Any, any other guesses? 500. 256, that's very precise. 
Gus got that veneer of, yeah, I know the answer to this. Any other thoughts? It's, it's actually only just over 20, which is really surprising because, you know, uh, often when you look at popular music, for instance, and it often refers to Christianity in some way or this kind of imagery of Jesus or holy nuns and stuff like that, you know, Madonna naming herself in a name that links in with the Bible, it's kind of scandalous, etc., etc. I found on uh, A to Z zip lyrics on the internet, there were over 100 songs that had temptation as a title, um, let alone references to temptation in popular music. It's a massive, massive theme in, in popular music. So, but actually, the Bible doesn't use the word nearly as much as you'd expect. Now, in the Old Testament, we certainly see the concept of temptation. David was tempted. We see Adam and Eve tempted. But the word temptation or tempt or tempted or tempting, which are there in those 20 references, doesn't actually appear. The word in Greek, if you're into that kind of stuff, is pyrasmos. And that's the word for temptation itself. And And its variants come up, yeah, just only 20 times in the Bible. So as part of this talk, we're going to be looking really at this theme of temptation, but trying at the end as well to address some of the other things that pop up in 1 Corinthians 10, because I feel I have to do duty to those as well, and not just to the the big theme that's clearly there. Now, anybody got any ideas what, if temptation is giving in to something that you're being tempted by, what's the opposite of temptation? Or giving in to temptation? What would you say the opposite to giving in to temptation is? Resisting? Obedience? Any other thoughts? Self control? Yeah. Any other thoughts? And so all of those are are to do with kind of um, hunkering down, bottling it up, kind of obedience, kind of sticking to it, self control, saying no. I think this passage is saying that actually the opposite of temptation and giving in to temptation is actually running the race, which is the metaphor that Paul's been using here. Just open up your Bibles at uh, 1 Corinthians 10 if you've got them, or it's also, the passage is also printed inside the, uh, on the service sheet. And, and if we look at the beginning of um, 1 Corinthians 10, it says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. Well, what, why is there a word for there? We need to look back a little bit at what the context is because, like I said at the beginning, this, this epistle wasn't written with chapter divisions in there. They were added in just for convenience uh, in the medieval period. Um, so actually, it's, it's one flowing document. And the bit that flows into this chapter is actually about um, this race that Paul's talking about, where all the runners want run, but only one gets the prize. So I actually think that running the race is the opposite of temptation, of giving in to temptation. It's carrying on being fixed on that that destination that you're, you're running towards and running with all your might. This is actually Prospect Park. And over the last month or so, a park run has started at 9 o'clock on Saturday mornings. And people who run, run at, from walking pace up to amazingly fast, 
do this, uh, this uh, run. It's not a race, but you, you get your own time, and it's all free of charge and everything. Highly recommend it, and a really good way of meeting lots of very friendly people and in a very nice community atmosphere. This guy who was in the, in the shot there, just behind the lead guy, this guy is 81 years old. He's called Tom Harrison, and he's Britain's fastest marathon runner over 80. And he's run the London Marathon many times for Help the Aged, or Age Concern, I think they're called now. So, you know, in common with the Christian life, all of us are running this race if we're following Christ. Uh, whether we're, like, a few years old, because you can become a Christian very young, or even if you're extremely elderly. And, and there isn't a point where we retire from the race. We, we're on it all the time. So some of you might be thinking, well, what's he talking about this race, this Christian race? Um, who, is, who is Jesus is one of the keys to this whole race. Is Jesus a relevant person today? You might, you might not think so. Um, but if you go to the Alpha course, you'll find a most interesting discussion about why Jesus. And the fact that we believe that he broke the power of evil, he paid for the wrong we've done, he loves us and offers us eternal life, is, is an invitation to say, yes, Jesus, I want what you're offering to me. I want to be forgiven. I want to be cleansed. I want to go forward. And that means you're then in the race. Do you not know that in the race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Don't run half-heartedly. And this, this race is one in which It doesn't matter, actually, if you happen to run your 5K in 15 minutes and you're amazing, or if you run it in an hour. The important thing is to get to the end and run at the pace that that you can run. It's your race. It's not necessarily that we're competing with one another as as Christians, not at all. Uh, And Paul wasn't thinking of that uh, in this passage. One of the things Paul then says is, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Have you ever done anything in your Christian life which would be a way of training you? Have you ever done something practical like street pastors or helping at the festival with um, uh, festival goers at Reading Festival? Or have you gone on an outreach where you're doing some street evangelism? (gasps) That means totally scary stuff. Or... um, done some Bible course to understand the Bible better, like walk through the Bible, which you can do in one day, or done Bible in one year using that marvellous app that uh, Nikki Gumbel and friends have produced. Um, those are ways that, that could be training that would mean that your race would be faster, it would be strengthened. And then focus. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. It's really easy in the Christian life, especially when you've been a Christian for decades, to kind of just become a bit aimless, turn up to church on a Sunday, keep doing same old, which isn't wrong, but it, we can become aimless. Or maybe we feel like, well, I've tried this Christian thing and it doesn't seem to be working yet. I don't think I'm going to carry on. That, that's not a great idea either. 
But just keep that, that sense of a purpose in the distance and keep running. And then the, the thing that comes up here after that is that Paul says, no, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. And then he goes on to say, for I do not want you to be ignorant in in this chapter 10. So I think he's introducing chapter 10 with this idea that disqualification is, means you're out of the race. One of the things you have to do if you're in a race is obey the rules. If you go off course, like those people did during the London Marathon and ran faster than Mo Farah during one part of it because they missed out two miles, they're out. Um, and if we've run 90% of the race and we're nearly there, but we then get disqualified, that's not a great thing to happen. So... The way that Paul seems to be um, talking about temptation and all these things that happened to uh, his Jewish forefathers were described as disqualification for the race in this analogy. Don't be disqualified. One of the themes that keeps coming up in 1 Corinthians is, I have the right to do anything. So it says in, chapter, in verse 23 of chapter 10, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. I think Paul's being very, very, very delicate here. He could say, because we've had these subjects come up in this book before, incest. Don't be stupid! Don't even go there! But instead he says, no, not everything is beneficial not everything is constructive think about it guys (laughs) is this really a good thing to do he also mentions prostitution you know the bible is full of the gritty stuff of modern life it's not it wasn't written in the victorian period it wasn't written where everything was nice and prim uh, as you might and rose tinted it's it's right there with with all of life isn't it And then he goes into this section where he's talking about Israel, about his forefathers, how they all passed under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. This is referring to them leaving Egypt during the Exodus, which we kind of looked at in that Exodus series last year, you may may remember. And he's linking the passage through the sea as a kind of baptism because they were walking basically between walls of water they didn't really get wet but he sees that as a kind of baptism and everybody got the same food everybody got manna it just came every morning and tasted like um, almond honey biscuits or something like that which I could live on you know if I had to live on one thing that would be pretty good it'd be a bit like breakfast cereal Um, you know really really tasty Um, everybody got it Nobody got better because they were more spiritual or more holy. Everybody in Israel got the same experience. They were all delivered by God. He'd heard their prayer while they were under the slavery. Um, They had this miraculous escape. He'd called them just to go up to the promised land. It was as easy as that. But they made everything so difficult because 
They wanted to go back. They got bored. Um, when Moses went up on the mountain, they got impatient. Uh, as Aaron described it later, everybody came with their earrings and jewellery and gold, and I just threw it in the fire, and out came an idol. And whoops-a-daisy, we all worshipped it. Um, they were that ill-disciplined. Um, they looked, at, and as well as having this uh, idolatry session while Moses was up the mountain, of all times, they thought they'd have a bit of an orgy as well. I mean, it was all absolutely shocking stuff. And earlier than that, they got demoralized. They were walking in this trudging through this desert. And as you saw earlier, the Judean desert, which isn't the Egyptian desert, is, is dry, and as all deserts are, obviously, um, and feature, quite featureless, and not an easy place to keep going through day by day. And eventually, God's patience snapped. Um, It says in um, Numbers 14 that um, God said, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say, because they'd all been complaining they were going to die. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall, every one of you who has grumbled against me. Not one of you who will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home. He also says in Numbers 14 that you've tested me and tried me 10 times, but that's metaphorical because actually they did it almost worse than that. It was almost daily that they were grumbling. They said, oh, back in Egypt we had onions, garlic, as much as we wanted, and out here we've just got this manna. The manna wasn't keeping them happy, and they were really impatient. And so Paul reminds those of his hearers in Corinth who knew about Jewish things, because not all of them were Jewish or from a Jewish background, that uh, this had happened in the past and that um, terrible things had happened. In one day, 23,000 of them had died. Uh, And over the the remainder of the 40 years, all of of that generation died. Um, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. We are so privileged as Christians. We're not just coming into a physical land of milk and honey. We are those collectively on whom the culmination of the ages has come. And so the next metaphor that I think applies here after this one of running, is standing firm. Unfortunately, we, our projector isn't quite powerful enough, but if you look at that end of that arrow, there's a guy just standing at the door of the, this lighthouse, which is off the coast of Brittany. And this way, huge wave is about to engulf the whole thing, and he's just kind of in typically Gallic sort of style, looking like he might be having a fag you know, at the front door. But um, I thought this is such a good metaphor for standing firm, how our lighthouse base can be just engulfed by water. And um... so Paul then goes on to tell us this, this really well-quoted verse, that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. 
And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So just flicking, whoops, not flicking that far back. I wanted to go back one, which is what I think I did, but sorry about that. Keep going. Back, 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 back. Yeah, I'll, I won't um, try using this. So he's saying that no temptation has seized us except what is common to man. That the temptations that we've had are ones that Jesus has already experienced before us, and he's been victorious. Um, it might feel like, oh, nobody's, nobody's had it as bad as me. But actually, other people have. And and God has, God knows about this sort of temptation and he can provide a way out under it. Look for the way out. And then keep standing firm. Uh, In this really, really helpful book by Rick Warren, uh, which was the flavor of the month about 10 years ago, called The Purpose Driven Life. Nobody's read it since it's been the flavor of the month and dropped out, but... It's got some really, really good stuff in it. So Rick Warren suggests that for defeating temptation, there are a number of practical steps that you can take. One of them is to, as Paul says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. Number one, realize that you're vulnerable. Number two, when you are tempted and something comes into your mind that you think is really attractive whether it's David sitting on the rooftop of his palace and seeing this lady having a bath, or whether it's Eve being tempted by an apple, or Jesus in the the wilderness being tempted to turn a, a stone into a load of bread. Change your channel of your mind. Refocus your attention on something else. Rick Warren describes that as like this. He says, sometimes this means physically leaving a tempting situation. This is one time it's okay to run away. Get up and turn off the television set. Walk away from a group that's gossiping. Leave the theatre in the middle of the movie. To avoid being stung, stay away from the bees. Do whatever is necessary to turn your attention to something else. Spiritually, your mind is your most vulnerable organ. To reduce temptation... Keep your mind occupied with God's word and other good thoughts. You defeat bad thoughts by thinking of something better. This is the principle of replacement. You overcome evil with good. Satan can't get your attention when your mind is preoccupied with something else. That's why the Bible repeatedly tells us to keep our minds focused. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, one verse says. Always think about Jesus Christ, another Fill your minds with the things that are good and deserve praise, things that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, and honourable. And then when it comes to uh, the last step, this is where the word resist that someone brought up earlier uh, comes in, which is resisting the devil. Using the full armour of God that we see in Ephesians chapter 6 to stand firm against him. This theme of running the race comes up throughout the scriptures, uh, well, throughout the New Testament, uh, and 
Here's another example of it in Hebrews 12. Uh, Let us run run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Like we talked about back with the contemplative church back in April, um, this this involves a steady, prolonged look to Jesus. It involves endurance. And it, it also involves the joy of what we know is ahead of us. And this verse in um, verses from Isaiah that David read earlier also relates that even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is a race where the runner doesn't end up giving up because they're tired. Let's just spend a moment thinking about our race. Let's um, spend a moment thinking about what could God be saying to us that would be the way out of a temptation we're facing right now? What could be uh, his answer to us? What could be the way out? What could be... um, He's saying to us in terms of get some training, renew your focus, strengthen yourself. Move forward. And if if there's anything that you want to pray about with someone, the prayer ministry team will be at the back at the end. Then there's um, some more to 1 Corinthians 10 that didn't really fit in that theme, so I just wanted to add it as a little addendum. And it does relate to what we're going to be doing. Um, We are doing communion today, aren't we? 11.45 if you want to stay for that. So... Paul then goes on to talk a bit about um, idol feasts and the Lord's Supper. And he says these things on the slide. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. If you're running the race, you don't want to be getting mixed up with idolatry. Is this cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a part up? Is not this cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? When we come around this table to celebrate the Lord's death, we we participate in something very holy that's totally the opposite of idolatry. And the Church of England has very helpfully given us instructions that we use very fine vessels, white cloths, specially trained person and qualified and approved person to do it. This is not uh, a cheap sacrifice. Uh, This is a place of deep belonging. And it's only really for those people who are runners in the race. 
It's, it's a family gathering. We welcome everybody to this church, but not everybody perhaps is running the race yet or feels that they're ready to accept Jesus. Just end with this um, quote from C.H. Spurgeon. To know that Jesus loves me is one thing, but to be visited by him in love is more. I think the moments we're nearest to heaven are those we spend at the Lord's table. So let's um, move into worship now as we sing Faithful One. But let's also remember that our worship is not just sung, although we love that and we rejoice in that, but it is also in adoration at the times that we come to the Lord at his table. Thank you.